Hello world, welcome to the Political Worldview Podcast, April 24th, 2017, Snap Election Rigged Referendum Edition. I'm Adam Quinn, Senior Lecturer in International Politics at the Political Science and International Studies Department of the University of Birmingham in England. I'm joined as usual by Kristalia Kinthu, a Birmingham Research Fellow. How are you doing, Kristala? I am all right, thank you, Adam. How are you? I'm getting by. Slightly croaky of voice as a result of a a thoroughly enjoyed Easter. Too well, too much celebrating my friend's 40th birthday combined with showing my parents around tourist attractions, you know, burning that candle at both (laughs) ends in the uh, the realm of middle-aged socialization. Um, And also by Professor Scott Lucas, who is Professor of International Politics and Editor of News and Commentary site EA Worldview. How are you doing, Scott? Just super duper. You've got a croissant in front of you in a distressingly rustly-looking plastic bag, but I believe we've reached an agreement that it's not going to be broken out until you've left the studio. Is that correct? Not unless you say something that really ticks me off. <laughs> Is eating a response to, to yeah. stress? Yeah, that'll yeah. be a sign of escalation <laughs> exactly. between us. Donald Trump yells fake news. I yell real croissant right in the middle of the, yeah, but the symbolism of using a croissant as a, <laughs> as a gesture of hostility. Particularly be, this week. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's a good point. Thank Long, you. Top topical Thank stuff. You. Our two topics today. First, Theresa May catches everyone on the hop with the surprise announcement of a UK general election on June 8th. With the opposition seemingly poised for crushing, are we en route to a one-party state? Second, Turkey's leader Recep Tayyip Erdogan claims victory in a referendum to give his presidency the strongman powers that his authoritarian instincts have been crying out for. But was the vote stolen, and is there a damn thing anyone can do about it if so? On June 8th, the United Kingdom will go to the polls after Prime Minister Theresa May called for and Parliament approved a snap general election. It'll be just over two years since the last one, at which the Conservatives won a majority, but much has changed since then. Britain has voted to leave the European Union, David Cameron was toppled as Prime Minister, and Mrs May elevated at the end of a circular firing squad in which other senior figures destroyed one another. The PM had previously pledged there would be no election until 2020, and attributed her change of heart to the need for greater unity at Westminster behind the inevitability of Brexit. No one was buying that for a moment, though. Uh, More plausible reasons quickly noted by commentators were, one, the likelihood of a vastly increased Tory majority and a world-historically bad defeat for the opposition Labour Party under Jeremy Corbyn, which is polling terribly, and second, the fact that a 2020 general election would have seen the government face the country right after the hard realities of Britain's real terms of exit from the EU. You become known. So, in the words of one wag in the newspaper this week, we have a Prime Minister calling an election she said she wouldn't call, to seek a mandate she said she didn't need, to pursue a policy that she thinks is a bad idea. Uh, Mrs May was a Remain campaigner back during the referendum, of course. We're lucky enough to have with us a friend of the podcast and previous regular guest, Mark Goodwin, who's a lecturer in British politics, who could help us decipher what's happening and what will come of it. So, Mark. um, Hello. uh, Welcome. Welcome back to the Political Worldview podcast. Always a pleasure. Let's start with the timing of this thing. Theresa May said there wasn't going to be an election until 2020. She was asked a lot of times. She was very clear about that fact. Now she's clearly given in to the the magnetic logic of, uh, uh, of those reasons that I set out before to say, Okay, now is the time. Reverse of all I said before. Mm-hmm. 
does she get away with that? Uh, people are trying to make it seem like it ought to matter that she's going directly against something she promised not to do. Do you think there's any realistic possibility of the voters giving a damn about that, or is that just uh, inside baseball? Yeah, I don't think anyone cares. I don't think anyone will care. I mean, people might care for five seconds um, that she had, had, uh, has gone back on a position she previously expressed, but I don't think it's going to be important. I don't think it's a basis around which people are going to rally. I think people get that there is an element to politics that's about when you've got the advantage, you try and ram it home. Um, and I don't think that's going to be uh, an issue particularly. I mean, in, in one sense, you know, um, I think... It, there was, uh, there's been a good sort of rationale for having an election for, for quite a while. So Theresa May's been in the position she's currently in since July, um, and at any point you think you know there, there was some talk that she might call an immediate election uh, or request an immediate mm. election. Um, but I think I don't think many of the major variables have changed. I think. Retrospectively, I think anyone who you know tells you they weren't surprised by this is probably lying. Uh, I was surprised by it definitely. Mm-hmm. Um, and retrospectively, people are trying to work back, you know, and, and think what the logic is. I think the most plausible thing is now that Article Fifty has been dealt with, um, there's some looking forward and thinking: Do we want to be running up against an election campaign uh, when this two-year window, which anyone in their right mind thinks is going to be far too short? To resolve the issue uh, uh, starts to close. So I think that's the kind of most plausible explanation for why it comes now. Because we ended up in a very strange position, right, where within not much more than a year after um, the last general election, not a single leader of one of the major political parties was the same, including the prime minister. They were all gone, and the election manifesto in which the government had been elected was effectively out of the window uh, mm. as far as governing was concerned. So, like, Parliament was really freelancing it for, for a while there, right? Yeah, but again, you know, that sort of thing... There, You know, British politics relies on these myths and kind of tacit understandings, and, and one of the biggest myths is the idea of a mandate, uh, that a general election gives you a mandate uh, to deliver your manifesto uh, or whatever it might be, but it's a very loose guideline really to what you actually do in office obviously after 2010 there was no manifesto for that government either um there was a coalition agreement which nobody had voted on so um that idea you know some people were talking about well Theresa May needs to have a personal mandate I mean of course you don't need that in the British system at all Hmm. um and the, the the mandate or your parameters or kind of uh uh, freedom of of, um, of action is is quite significant if you've got a majority, even if it's a relatively small one like uh, mm. Theresa May has had up till now. So um, as far as that goes, um, you know these things are, are not really a barrier to action mm. for somebody who's, who's uh, in the position Theresa May is in. So her plan should it all go well, presumably, is that she goes into this election at the head of a united party. She smashes and smites all before her to convert this massive lead the opinion polls keep telling us she has into a parliamentary majority and then uh, governs with the almost unlimited latitude that like 100 plus MPs as a majority give her as opposed to the kind of difficult balancing act she now has to carry out. So in a sense, the justification is pragmatic to the extent that she gets a huge majority 
everything worked out fine to the extent she didn't she doesn't uh, questions will be asked about the calculation how safe is that bet is this is this the no-brainer cashing in of chips that it's been portrayed as is she going to romp home or you know if you were sitting quietly behind Theresa May's drapes would you be a little more nervous than that yeah I mean I think there's a big element of might as well to this this election you know um that the Conservatives have basically been sitting in front of an open goal for several months. I think that, you know, think, well, we might as well go for it. You know, Article 50 has been passed relatively um, uh, easily uh, and you might as well go for it. You know, again, another big feature of British politics is the amateur historians and the anecdotes. And there are plenty of stories in British politics about people who had the opportunity to do this kind of thing, call an election and didn't do it. Um and you know that didn't turn out very well for them all the indications are you know if you're going to look at the available evidence and make a judgment about what's going to happen you will say this is going to be a very significant victory for the conservative party uh polling wise we're looking at something like uh the conservatives polling around 45 up to 50 which is a a huge kind of figure for a, a party in british politics Labour, something like 28 down to 24, 25, uh, which is historically very low for them. On top of that, uh, you know, um, as we all know, and they were in 2015, polls can be wrong, but in British politics, polls are always wrong in one direction, which is they overestimate Labour support. So uh, it's the picture may be even worse than it appears. So if you look at those kind of things... And again, to be clear, it appears terrible. So if it's worse than it appears, then that's like... That's, that's, as I said in the introduction, world historically bad. That's like off the scale bad. Yes. And if you look at, you know, other things... good for the Conservatives. Yeah. Let's not forget there may be some listeners out there who who are delighted about this. Other kind of indicators, you know, of how an election's going to go... Perceptions of leader, Labour is a million miles behind, or rather Corbyn is a million miles behind May. Uh, on the key issues, Brexit uh, is now supposedly the number one issue that voters care about. Labour is a million miles behind on that. It's behind UKIP, it's behind various other parties on that issue. Immigration, it's miles behind. And the economy, it's miles behind. So all those indicators suggest something terrible for the Labour Party. And if you... Uh, on the basis of the evidence that we've got, you would have to expect significant victory for the Conservative Party. Now, there are some reasons to think it might not be the gigantic crushing victory that some people are expecting. So one, the main reason to think that is that uh, polls tell you about vote share, but vote share doesn't matter in British politics. Only seat share matters. And there are some features of the current political environment that suggests with the massive caveat of if things in the future resemble things in the past mm-hmm. might suggest that the, the, the crushing victory isn't quite as um, guaranteed as you would think. So for example a long run trend in British politics for decades now is a smaller number of marginal seats, a smaller number of Labour Conservative marginal seats. So Conservatives can get a very high vote share but they've got to win they've got to convert seats from somewhere right if they're just getting massively more love from the people who live in the seats they already have then like that's great everyone can have street parades in their safe seats but it makes no difference to the parliamentary yeah it makes no difference so they've got to pick up seats from somewhere 
the Lib Dems have got a very small number of seats. They've got nine seats. So you're not going to produce a crushing victory by turning over Liberal Democrat seats, okay, even if you win all of them. Uh, and they don't gain any, which you know, mm. they may gain some. Um, Scotland has been no-go territory for the Conservative Party for a while. There's some signs that they're reviving there. But say the Conservative Party managed to get five seats in Scotland. That would be a mammoth return for them in Scotland. They haven't got more than one since 1997. Mm. So... Uh, a year in which they got no seats in Scotland. So they're not... It, it's very unlikely that they're going to pick up huge amounts of seats there, which means they've got to convert Labour-held seats. Labour is already doing very poorly. It's already, in a lot of ways, down to its core vote. It's already down to its heartlands. means Labour-heartland seats have got to be converted to Conservatives for them to rack up a really huge majority. Mm-hmm. So, And the number of seats that are that... Uh, kind of seat, a Labour Conservative marginal mm-hmm. held by the Labour Party with uh, a small majority is quite very small. Mm. I think there's a, there's a 20, approximately 20 seats that are, have a 5% um, majority for the Labour Party at the moment. So you've got to convert, mm. a, you know, you need a, a, the uh, kind of performance the Conservative Party needs is even bigger than you might kind of think. Mm. Okay, so, um, you know, a large uh, increase in vote share might uh, not convert into a large increase in seat share or as large as some people expected. This is an election where it's not enough for the Conservative Party to win, to meet expectations. They've got to win 10 nil effectively. Um, and the, the pattern of seats might give some cause to doubt that it's going to be quite as straightforward as that. And the reason why we can be, well, the reason why there is a higher expectation, despite what you've outlined, that Labour might get smashed, I guess, rests on two things, right? First of all, the Brexit effect, which is the idea that there are loads of voters in these normally safe Labour seats who uh, are pro-Brexit and, as a consequence, may be attracted to the Conservatives because they they think they're a more solid bet for that. On the other side of the ledger, all the pro-EU Labour voters who feel let down by Jeremy Corbyn's lack of enthusiasm for that are ripe for harvesting by, say, the Liberal Democrats or somebody else. So because Labour is the most divided on Brexit, its voters might scatter to the four corners. And then the second reason is that Jeremy Corbyn is viewed as an exceptionally toxic leader when it comes to the electorate, that whether it's because he's too left-wing or too incompetent or some mixture of the two, vast swathes of the electorate, even the Labour voting electorate, just does not think this is a plausible possible prime minister and therefore will not show up to vote for him. So it's, it's about the terrible problems within the Labour Party and its, and its vote um, that the, the magic ingredient lies. Right, uh, yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, what I'm trying to, to get across, I suppose, is that Something uh, more than your kind of standard of election pattern is needed for this huge, you know, 100 plus majority of the Conservatives to occur. Now, mm. we know, you know, British politics is very volatile at the moment and those kind of things can happen. Um, so, you know, I think that the closest parallel with, with past British elections will be the 1983 election. Mm. So, in that uh, year, uh, the Conservatives. Uh, who obviously were the, you know, the, the first Thatcher government had just concluded, 
lost something like three quarters of a million votes and added 100 seats to their majority in Parliament. Um, and the reason for that was that the, the non-conservative vote was divided two ways mm. between the Labour Party and an alliance of Social Democrats and Liberals. Now, in this election, I think you might have some a, a kind of similar pattern, except the non-conservative vote is split at least five ways. So it's the way that those things um, are redistributed that is somewhat difficult to call but I think it's very hard to find scenarios where the Labour Party does well out of it. Mm. So UKIP got uh, the best part of four million votes last time. I think very few of them go to Corbyn, the Corbyn Labour Party. Mm. So uh, uh, that's a big sort of... It, it's somewhat unknown, but I think you can make a reasonable prediction that it, it, it's going to go one way. Any decline in the SNP uh, vote in Scotland seems likely to benefit the Conservatives. Um, the Liberal Democrats, it, it's uh, less clear how they'll do, um, but I think a more plausible scenario for them is that they pick up some of the the kind of Richmond Park type seats that they just won a by-election in Richmond Park with overturning a very large Conservative majority. That's probably their best bet. And they could also get back some of those seats they lost down in the southwest from the Conservatives last time, maybe. Because those Tory MPs were the ones who were least ecstatic about the idea of this election, right? Because they feel like they're, you know, they haven't had time to embed themselves as the... Yeah, I, I, I think I, I, I think that's a slightly less likely scenario than the Lib Dems picking up those seats in kind of outer London uh, and you know Cambridge, Bath, those kind of places, just because the the southwest uh, I think is less susceptible to the, the strong Remain message. Although the Lib Dems are already walking that back mm. uh, and saying they're only against hard Brexit, so I think that that's the. Uh, the 1983 comparison, I think, works. But the difference this time is that Labour is almost already in the position that they were in after the 1983 election. So they're yeah. already in that disastrous position. Um, they've got about 20 more seats now than they had after 1983 uh, when they, uh, of course, went into the election on ludicrous left-wing policies like leaving Europe. So... Um, <laughs> That in a sense, Labour is already wiped out. Okay, so the 1983 is their worst election result since the Second World War. And if they were to turn in, you know, they've got 209 seats in that election. If Labour was to turn around and produce 209 seats now, that would be seen as an absolute vindication of the Corbyn project <laughs> and as something of a triumph. So that's the level we're talking about. I mean, all these caveats I'm adding are really, you know, in the context of what could be an utter... Uh, mm. Disaster. Uh, just arguing that maybe it will be not quite as bad as that. Worst performance uh, by any of the major parties since uh, the Second World War was the Conservatives in '97, when they got 165 seats. Even that, you know, uh, by, you might not be considered too bad mm. um, a performance. Uh, so that's the scale of things we're talking about. All these other things are really, you know minor sort of um, caveats to that. That's a really good analysis, but I do wonder about a couple things. Uh, and I think primarily vote share, I think, might matter this time around because on substance, you're right. I mean, the, it, 
a vote share of 45% doesn't mean the Tories have a majority of more than 100. It could be 50, 60, 70. But that's still the largest vote share, I think, in recent history for a single party. And May can point to that and say, well, look, we're even close to a majority versus all these other parties. Because, of course, the second factor is that we're not talking about a one-on-one or one-on-two situation, even that we had in the 1980s. But as you mentioned, a, a, you know, a scattering of parties, almost a fragmenting of, of, of opposition, which is where I think the one factor I add to why this election was called, that I'm not sure, and that is it looks like this is May's opportunity not just to, to finally knock labor off the block, which was coming, but it's sort of to him to try to him in the SNP, which would be much more difficult if she went in 2020, um, conceivably after another Scottish referendum, and also to him in UKIP. I mean, I've been su- surprised by how little has been mentioned by the media of how much UKIP, in effect, is boxed in by this. Because if there's a Brexit effect, they're not necessarily going to reap the benefit of it. It's going to be the Tories because of May's shifting position, which gives her that clear two-run space up until 2019, 2020, when reality hits on how bad this deal is that she eventually gets. So I, I think I agree with you going deep dive on this, but I think she went for the immediate surface politics. And as much as I dislike her, I think it's a pretty smart call. Yeah, I mean, I think you can look at the overall strategy since May um, took over the leadership and, and, you know, obviously became Prime Minister, um, that uh, there's been a clear strategy of trying to, um, you know, take a very uh, tough line on Brexit and essentially kind of... uh, steal the positions of UKIP and and, 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 and control the um, Eurosceptics uh, among the Conservative Party, which actually, you know, there are many more Eurosceptics in the Conservative Party than you would think from looking at the breakdown of who supported Remain and who supported Leave. Mm. Okay, there are many other reasons why Conservative uh, MPs supported Remain. For one thing, their boss was telling exactly. them to do it. Exactly. Which that's probably why the official made position it, of the example. party of which they're a member. So... Um, so that's been the stance. Now, some people are saying, well, you know, once you've cleared the election on the 8th of June, you can start to walk some of that back and, you know, it's, it's positioning for a softer um, uh, Brexit, maybe. But one of the things that it has achieved, I think, is to, to render UKIP um, a very sort of, you know, almost redundant. Although their support hasn't fallen away as much as you might have thought, um, they're in a very difficult position now. And just today, um, they've announced some of the things that they're going to be including in their manifesto, and we can see the direction of, of travel there. That you know, uh, what's the point of UKIP once the main party of government has decided it's going for this hard uh, uh, Brexit, or at least that's what they're claiming at the moment? And UKIP have kind of uh, um, taken really the only route that's available to them, which is to go extreme on the kind of cultural politics. So, uh, you know, they're talking about burqa bans, they're talking about uh, compulsory inspections for female genital mutilation, uh, they're talking about crackdowns on electoral fraud in minority um, voting districts. All of the white-hot issues that concern the median voter deeply. Yeah, well, uh, although, uh, I don't know if we're doing number of the week today, but uh, there's some suggestion that things like the burqa ban are actually more popular than you might think. 
So mm. apparently 57% of people, according to YouGov, support a burqa ban. Yeah. Well, high popularity, low priority would probably be uh, the way but one it, might But what's left to the UKIP? Like bring back hanging. That. What's left to UKIP other than that? It's, mm. you know, the, the, their positions over Europe uh, have been adopted wholesale by the Conservative Party. Uh, so that's the only avenue that's really available to them. Um, so um, I think that's, you know, and there's four million votes. UKIP finished second in 120 seats mm. in the last election, albeit quite distant in some cases. But the distribution of that vote, which I expect to be primarily to the Conservatives, uh, is likely to be a big factor here. I think you've got to be, uh, you know, you might see UKIP falling back to the kind of levels of support that, say, some, a party like the BNP was able to muster, mm. uh, which is much, much lower. I want to ask, and I know it's opening Pandora's box, before we wrap this item up, I want to ask a couple of Corbyn-related questions. Because, as we've already discussed, a big reason why people think this election is going to be potentially devastating for the Labour Party, even though they're already starting from a low base, is because we believe that this is an exceptional situation, that Labour is going into it led by someone who is not usual and who is therefore expanding the range of possibilities on the on the downside. Um, my first question would be, given the perception that Jeremy Corbyn is thoroughly ineffectual and is definitely not going to win, does that to some extent affect the Conservatives' ability to drum up the vote they want for this huge majority? Because if Jeremy Corbyn, you know, waving his red flag, uh, abolishing the nuclear deterrent, uh, you know, in the mind's eye of Tory voters, like uh, seizing the means of production and redistributing the proceeds to the proletariat. Um, If all of that was a sharp and acute realistic prospect, then of course you would have armies of people coming over, probably even from the Labour Party's own vote to turn out for the Conservatives to stop it from happening. But if no one believes that it's going to happen because no one thinks that Jeremy Corbyn has any chance of winning this election, are a whole load of people going to just turn up and vote for the Labour Party because they want to keep the Labour Party like represented in Parliament and capable of opposition uh, who do not want Jeremy Corbyn to win, but they feel reassured by the impossibility of that. Whereas if this really was an electoral choice... Um, you know, then that would change the calculus altogether. And I guess the second thing, just to add, and before I pass it over, like, to what extent are we correct to read Jeremy Corbyn as being this ineffectual, doomed figure? Like, have we all been uh, manipulated and had our button, buttons pushed by the uh, conspiracy of the notorious right-wing Tory press, which exists and which we're told about, into seeing a normal political leader as exceptionally incompetent and divisive and unfit and doomed, or is that to some extent illusory? And maybe this is someone who, given the slightly more even platform that a general election provides, might be capable of changing changing things around. Okay. Uh, so on the first point, does the fact that, that Corbyn, that nobody thinks Corbyn will become Prime Minister, make it perhaps more likely that people will vote Labour? I mean, I, I think that's kind of logically possible, but I'm not sure it will work that way. I'm I, thinking I've, about it. Let's put it that can, way. Can, I, I've, can I ask a, an interfering question? What percentage of Conservative voters voted uh, Remain? I don't remember. Uh, it, so the breakdown on Conservative voters uh, was 60-40. 
So what happens? Leave. What happens if some of those remain voters not finding an alternative and not being willing to leave the Conservative Party just don't vote? Okay. Well, I think the as far as the remain vote goes. Okay, we know that the the overall remain vote was forty eight percent at the time of the referendum. I think that number is very, was very soft, and if you were to rerun it now, I think you can expect it to be a lot lower. Uh, some of the polling evidence I've seen suggests that the, the remain diehards is around about twenty percent uh, of people who who would want to oppose Brexit now, whereas many people who uh, supported remain in the referendum have subsequently, you know, in the absence of economic catastrophe um, uh, and, you know, with everything else that's going on in British politics, basically accept the result. So I think I don't think there's a huge constituency that is going to kind of um, uh, prioritise, you know, re- uh, remain from that position. Um, there may be some, and that's the kind of seats I'm talking about in outer London where the Lib Dems, I think, if they had the, the balls, basically, to go for that strong Remain message, um, could make some gains, but I'm not sure they have. But I, I, th- I would be a little bit dubious that Conservatives are going to... It's not what Conservatives do. You know, they're in a position of strength, and they, they don't go in for self-sabotage in the way that the Labour Party does. So I, I think... Cultural I, lesson which, yeah. which takes us back to <laughs> yeah. Jeremy Corbyn. So Corbyn, I, yeah, I think there's, there's a... a I can see that that argument logically makes sense, the one you put forward. Okay? Because you can't, make, you can't make people afraid of him. You can't get people to vote for you just because you're not him. Right. Well, unless you can. So the accusation against Corbyn and the way he operates is that he's always tried to turn the Labour Party into a party not of government but of protest. Okay. Mm. Now, maybe people feel more comfortable voting for the Labour Party as a party of protest and on his platform. But I think there's a, possibly a kind of counter uh, dynamic that might come in with People who might be uh, who might regard themselves as normally being Labour sympathetic to Labour, uh, lending their vote to the Conservative Party just in order to to ensure that Corbyn gets well and truly thrashed, uh, mm. and with the expectation that he mm. and his ideas and his way of ruining the Labour Party goes with him uh, after the election. So I think uh, I would think that's more plausible to me mm. um, that the sort of uh, the goal of getting rid of Corbyn, people take the opportunity to try and use their vote mm. to get rid of Corbyn, even a number of Labour supporters uh, yeah. might take that route. So, uh, as far as your other question, is yeah, Corbyn the, the, the really underlying issue? Like, like is he, because, you know, clearly everyone's starting premise in all of this is that this is one of the worst leaders of a major party there's ever been. Like, bad ideas, badly executed. This is, you know, uh, a disaster from start to finish. Is that correct and fair, or is it just that there is a sufficiently wide coalition of interests within and outside the Labour Party in making that believed that someone who might have done much better has been done in by by you know a, a wide-ranging, multi-fronted public relations assault, which is what people would no doubt tell you at his office. Okay, the reality is. Um it is not a conspiracy theory to suggest that there is a bias. Every Labour leader gets uh, uh, attacked and has their character uh, and abilities and competence uh, consistently and continually attacked by the, the media, the print media in particular. Um, and that's been the case for a long time. Uh, the Corbyn supporters are not 
entirely wrong about that. But I think there is something different about Corbyn. I think he he is uniquely um, bad at certain aspects of the job. Okay, you're talking about somebody who is, you know, I was talking earlier about the 1983 election. Michael Foote, who is considered, you know, uh, the, the parallel with Corbyn, was an experienced minister by the time he uh, he became leader of the Labour Party. Corbyn has never held a ministerial role, has never done any government work. Um, he's uh, very bad at dealing with the media. Um, but I, I think, you know, even there's a, there's a wider problem, which is... Uh, and... You know, I don't want to stray too far into my own views on this, but I think there's a real intellectual vacuum in the Labour Party, and not just the Labour Party, but the wider sort of centre-left in global politics. And I've talked about this before on the podcast, that there's just no... They don't really know what they're for. They don't really know who they're for. Um, and Corbyn's Labour Party in particular have just got no ideas. They... Um, are you know very backward looking uh, seem to have no analysis of anything that might have changed since Corbyn first came into politics uh, you know they're rerunning the 1983 campaign in more ways than one you know there's no acknowledgement that the structure of the economy the nature of work um, have changed the global environment has changed um, the way that people engage with politics has changed and uh, I think that's really a deeper problem. Um, he's, yeah, he's not very good on television. Although I, I think the, the, the um, fact that Corbyn is very keen to try and get involved in televised debates tells you something. He thinks that the, the, the reason he's in that position is because he performs better in a kind of Hustings type environment, which mm. is you know, how he came uh, uh, through in the Labour Party in the first place. He might be right about that, but I think the narrative has been set at this point. Uh, I don't think it's just conspiracy. I think, you know, um, he is, as I've said before on the podcast, he is the absolute face of the elite that people are rebelling against at the moment. They have said before the Labour Party thinks they've got an anti-elite leader, and they haven't. He's absolutely the wrong leader at the wrong time in politics. Um, And so I think there is something uniquely... Uh, problematic about him uh, in this current political moment um, uh, that makes him especially kind of uh, bad. Okay, it's time for number of the week, the round where we take some digits, attach them to a new story and give some chatter. Scott, what have you got for us this week? Go big, go black comedy. Uh, 1.6 billion. So $1.6 billion is the price tag for the shutdown of the U.S. government within days because the American government, as of April 28th, has no authorized funding to keep itself going. It relies on an emergency appropriation because the Trump administration has not yet gotten a budget passed through Congress. In fact, it's gotten zero pieces of legislation. There's another number for you passed uh, since it was inaugurated. Now, if this was a functioning government, then you would have an agreement between the Democrats and the Republicans. We just reach into the piggy bank. We get enough that things like Social Security don't shut down, uh, Veterans Administration, etc. But the Trump administration and its bullish 
ideological wisdom has said that it wants, it insists that funding of $1.6 billion, the first tranche of uh, money to construct the wall, must be included in that emergency authorization legislation. Uh, you can imagine how many Democrats are going to support that. More interestingly, you can find out that Republicans from the border states, Texas, New Mexico, California, Arizona, also are opposed to this. So when the Trump administration cannot get a majority uh, come Friday for its version of the emergency authorization bill, does it fold on the $1.6 billion demand, or does it effectively say, we're shutting the doors, screw you all, come back when you're ready to uh, give us the money for the first bricks to be laid? Well, what's mm-hmm. your prediction, Scott? I think they're so headstrong, uh, so averse to compromise that they will shut the government down. And in contrast to the shutdowns during the Obama years, when it was largely the Republicans in Congress who caused this, but it was like a pox on both your houses, I think the Trump administration will miscalculate and will be blamed by and large for being petty and uh, allowing uh, the government to close over what is really seen by many Americans uh, as a fairly ridiculous proposition. What have you got for us, Christelle? I'm going to foreshadow what I'll be saying in our uh, discussion on the Turkish referendum. Let us not forget that uh, since the since the attempted coup, and I put coup with a question mark next to it, um, there Still have been... Still riding that train, huh? Doesn't matter, I guess, at this point, but, you know, it's worth raising. 125,000 firings um, of people who worked in the public service, 47,000 arrests, 100,000 people detained, and three-odd thousand judges, prosecutors, um, legal services people sacked. That is my number for Turkey. From that that the is week. a lot of numbers, and mm-hmm. they, are, they are rather bleak. I couldn't add them up. My, my general you know, arithmetic is poor being a... Mm-hmm. My number of the week is 262 26.2% to be precise. That is the combined votes of the French Republican Party and the French Socialist Party's presidential candidates in the election first round that took place on Sunday. A reminder, those are the two notionally main political parties that provided the last... Uh, the last couple of presidents in the system. Between them, they just about scraped over one quarter uh, of the votes cast. Uh, Francois Fillon, um, who was the uh, Republican candidate, managed to come third, uh, just about ahead of a uh, hard-left candidate, um, what's his name, Jean-Luc Mélenchon, who came in, came in fourth place. Um, Benoit Hamon, the socialist candidate, came a horrifying sub-7%. Uh, one place back. I guess it's fairly trite uh, these days to observe that mainstream parties are struggling somewhat uh, and that uh, fringe movements and outsiders are doing well, but I think it really gives the point some hard, concrete purchase when we look at the fact that of the top four candidates in the French presidential election, only one was a member of Uh, one of the supposedly dominant mainstream parties. The Socialist Party won the presidency and the parliament five years ago, and now they are nowhere, and their mainstream alternative is not the thing that is replacing them. We've got uh, somewhere in the ballpark of uh, 
you know, 40% of people voting for either fascists or communists effectively within France at the moment. And that does not seem to me to speak well uh, for the health of the French polity. On April 16th, the Turkish government announced that by the slimmest of margins, 51 to 49 percent, the people had voted yes in a referendum substantially increasing the powers of the office of president. The constitutional amendments now to be implemented give the president freedom from accountability to parliament, substantial budgetary powers, and greater control of the judiciary. Happily for the incumbent, Recep Tayyip Erdogan of the Islamist AK party, they also relieve him of looming term limits, potentially allowing him to remain in office until 2029. Long-term podcast listeners will be aware that many in Turkey have long been concerned about Erdogan's authoritarian tendencies and lack of respect for the right of dissent, especially since a failed coup attempt against him in 2016 that prompted a sweeping crackdown on all opposition forces. Needless to say, uh, this result has done nothing to allay fears that Turkey's en route to being a one-party state or even a dictatorship. Outside groups engaged in monitoring the vote, including the Council of Europe and the OECD, quickly cried foul in its aftermath, arguing that a campaign slanted towards yes and intimidation of voters on polling day meant the referendum fell below the standard of free and fair. Erdogan seems disinclined, however, to let that dampen his celebrations, and we can safely assume he'll be pocketing this as a victory come what may. So, Cristala, yes. um, as our resident... Erdoganologist, if you will. Um, given the combination of the fact that this was an extremely dubiously conducted vote and the fact that the result was nevertheless really narrow in mm-hmm. favor of the side that it was dubiously slanted towards, uh, we can pretty confidently say case closed for starters on the fact that this was rigged, right? Like if you win a dodgy vote by 51%, then that speaks pretty unconvincingly to the genuineness of support for this thing. It says two things, yeah. I mean, it's it's rigged, but not in the traditional kind of superficial vote-rigging short-termism that you're talking about. This speaks to the, the, the 51, 49 point whatever speaks to um, a long-term strategy of uh, taking back the media on the part of Erdogan and shoring up his electorate and, more importantly, uh, terrorising communities and further dividing them. So what this actually, what what the uh, referendum points to is that given how hard the government tried to get a yes that division in Turkey is deep and it is not getting any better. Because you're pulling out all the stops up to and including intimidation at voter booths and you're still getting 51%, then, you know, that's not great. No. And so what it means is that the referendum, it may have given Erdogan very, very extensive powers and he may not leave his palace for a long time. But... Uh, it hasn't solved anything in terms of the 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 root of the divisions in Turkey in real language. It's deepened existing divisions. Um, you know, the novelist Elif Safak, uh, among many other people, talks of the two kind of clashing Turkeys now um, and this kind of total failure to coexist. And so that's what, aside from Erdogan's increasing problems with the Kurdish community um, 
and also with the Alevi community and the real risk of, of heightened violence within Turkey, I think what we're going to see is just this general deepening of a division and mistrust that is going to be extremely, extremely problematic going forward, which means that he is likely to use even more violent methods to shore up his vote and steamroll even more people. And that's in a that's in an environment where, just to kind of throw out some numbers from earlier this year, since the uh, attempted coup, 47,000 people have been arrested. Um, How many? 147,000. That's a lot of people. 47,000 people. And they're all in jail? Yeah. Um, a lot have been released. But yeah. A lot have been released, but you're right. The scale was unbelievable. How many people were swept up? But, I mean, a lot have been released, but 100,000 people were detained. So we're talking so. about 47,000 arrests, 100,000 detentions. 125,000 firings of people in the civil service and you add to that the dismissal of around 3,000 judges and prosecutors and you start seeing the landscape of, of Turkey today. And this is all on the pretext that they were in some sense complicit with subversive yep. forces allowing yep. the threat of a coup yep. to get as far as it did in 2016. So, I mean, that was going to be my next question, like... I threw out the number 2029 um, as when his constitutional terms of office in the future notionally time out. But even when I was reading that, I was kind of thinking, well, you know, you should be so lucky, opposition, as to, as to imagine 2029 as the year this guy leaves. Like, is he ever going to leave? And if, if, if not, um, at what point? Do we cross over from thinking of Turkey as being like a contentious democracy with one sort of fairly rough and ready leader uh, to being something more like a dictatorship? Turkey is <sighs> Turkey is well on the way towards a dictatorship. Let's let's put that out there. Um, but the landscape of domestic Turkish politics is not is not flat. We're talking about a Turkey where um, the liberalisation process uh, that was going gangbusters in the early days of AKP's rule around a decade or so ago uh, is floundering. We're talking about broken political institutions. We're talking about weakened universities and courts, real dissent, a fleeing of people abroad... And Turkey's credit um, rating has been recently downgraded to junk, right? So the landscape is not, is not good. Um, and so on the one hand, while you wonder what credible opposition there could be and will Erdogan rule until forever, um, on the other hand, the terrain is, is not a happy terrain. And if Erdogan also profits by rewarding voters and creating uh, an environment that is conducive to those who, who continue to adore him, mm. the spectrum of possibilities for continuing to do that is going to change. Mm. Which takes us into this kind of dark place where like, across a variety of different parts of the world at the moment, we seem to be wrestling with this idea of like what 
competence is mm. and what good government is in the sense that people are becoming empowered who like take measures that in their effect on the economy and on civic life uh, and on the health of the nation to someone with liberal sensibilities look disastrous like it looks like you're really screwing this country badly mm. up but if you can do as you say if you can channel what resources there are towards the people who are your people mm -hmm. and if you can craft a discourse that makes the rest of the problems seem like they're part of some manichaean battle between you know your patriotic yeah. uh, sensibilities and whoever it is that the category of the other happens to be in yeah. your own in your own national discourse then you can you can ride the rails a good long time through what looks to the outside eye of an awful lot like a mess while staying popular you you can but then if we if we bring it back to turkey and to this specific referendum and how close it was i mean you're spot on when you started that margin is tiny given how hard the akp fought for its position right mm. Which means that opposition exists. There are activists, there's civil society, there are political uh, figures who are besieged but who are also doing really, really critical work within and outside of Turkey to, um, to, to build consciousness of alternatives. Yeah, I, I think this is really fascinating because... A little bit contrary to what Kristal is saying, I don't think it easily fits into that Turkey's sliding to dictatorship while being concerned about what Erdogan's doing. And that's because of, I think, what's a really interesting difference. And that is, I, I kept thinking when this vote came through and Erdogan trying to expand his powers, and the important point that you bring up, that you have to go before the vote with the crackdown on the media, with the crackdown on civil society, with the purging of civil uh, institutions, with the purging of the military that you had parallels with Putin in, in Russia and with Sisi in Egypt. But let me give you a comparison that I think may be salient. In both of those countries, there's sort of an institutional depth to that authoritarian regime. I mean, in Putin's case, it really is the post-91 combination of the old Communist Party and the new so, uh, Russian oligarchy. In Egypt, it's the military. In, in the case of Turkey... Uh, Erdogan has had to fight the military to get where he is. He's had to fight a number of civil in of institutions. And he really doesn't have that strong of a party base. You know, AKP is not, you know, doesn't really have a depth of talent behind him. He's even purged Nav Davatolu, who arguably was the most capable politician beyond him. Mm -hmm. Here he is. So if Erdogan goes, I'm not sure you've got this authoritarian setup that's there. But while he's there, well, while he's there, what he harnesses is this very Turkish obsession with centralized government, right? And and I think if I'm going to put on my faux mm. kind of psychoanalyst hat, this fear of replaying the the dissolution of the Ottoman Empire—that's what they're playing out, in my opinion, in part. Agreed. And another way where I see it, there's a double-edged thing, yeah. here, which is even at a time when you were basically talking about a securitized state yeah. which is taking place you play upon people's fears of insecurity to keep ratcheting the yeah. process up and up and up <clears throat> but there's always that possibility of a tipping point that the violence inside turkey gets to be too much mm -hmm. and erdogan can't contain it in a way that the kurdish issue does go beyond control 
whether it's the PKK through violent action or the more nonviolent approach of HDP mm. raising a challenge. In other words, he, he's walking a bit of a tightrope here. Yeah. He, he walked it really well, whether or not he manufactured the coup in exploiting the coup, but whether he can do that the next time there's a security threat that comes up. But he's also creating a power vacuum into which we may not be able to see. I mean, it's about that what you're talking about is the mechanics of authoritarianism versus kind of one-person populism. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Which I think raises an interesting question. In other words, we're not only talking about the perceived danger of Erdogan here. We're talking about the perceived danger of Erdogan suddenly goes yeah. because he's stripped away institutional depth yeah. and has a very, very divided country. Uh, in, ter- in terms of its attitudes towards economy, politics, even identity, which, by the way, is just do not underestimate the economic downturn in Turkey, that a country which had grown significantly yeah. uh, since Erdogan uh, became prime minister in 2003 is now really going into recession. Or and, and he cultivated to- a lot of his popularity in the immediate aftermath of an economic downturn and profited from coinciding with the, yeah, with the return to also, relative economic health, I mean, right? at that time, AKP was, was al- almost a coalition of different interests, including of large big business interests, which helped harness that kind mm. of uptick. Mm. Um, and that doesn't, that doesn't exist so much anymore. Yeah. And when you get downturns in, in service sector and tourism, yeah. which has taken a huge hit, um, and when Turkey has now cut off the option of going into the EU whatever that meant in terms of economic prospects. I think extremely uncertain times that are going to probably be the biggest threat to Erdogan, mm-hmm. I think, is actually on the economic side. Yeah, I want to ask a question about the role of outsiders here. Mm-hmm. I, I mentioned before that the various um, European monitors of the election um, did not come away, from, or the referendum, I should say, did not come away from this thing with smiles and thumbs up. There was a pretty fast, pretty uncompromising statement to the effect that what happened here was not reputable. So in response to that, a lot of the Western European governments you know, have hemmed and hawed. Uh, you know, they don't want to just charge into full frontal confrontation, but they're acknowledging the fact that there is an issue here. It's a divided country. This vote may not have been free and fair. Donald Trump, on the other hand, President of the United States, apparently straight on the phone uh, to, to Erdogan. To and say, his daughter. Right, to, to say... Many congratulations to you. There was a sort of hilarious, um, well, blackly comic might be a better way to put it, um, back and forth then with the State Department publicly saying, so did, you know, the, did the president raise any of the, you know, concerns about democracy and human rights and liberal values that one might, you know, think you might also have raised during this conversation they were like oh we, yeah probably not exactly sure i'm sure he did kind of thing but you know we know what happened there donald trump went on they had a buddy buddy conversation about how they're some strong men who like the idea of firm government and it adds to the impression that the united states these days uh, is governed by somebody with a strong sense of personal identification with um brutish authoritarian political figures, whether it be in Russia or Turkey, etc. Like, no one here, I think, is going to say Donald Trump uh, is, you know, has the attitudes we would prefer towards these kinds of leaders. But what is the right kind of attitude towards these kind of leaders? Is there anything that outsiders can do faced with someone like Erdogan doing something like this that doesn't just turn into, like, 
counterproductive hectoring of the sort that allows him to get more, more of his fans on board? I think this is a question for Scott, but what I would answer is that we need to factor in the European tension around refugees and their indebtedness to Turkey or their perceived indebtedness to Turkey to, to keep people, to keep specifically Syrian and Iraqi refugees, mostly Syrian refugees, in Turkey so they don't come to Europe, right? So there's this Faustian pact there which is hamstringing Europe, Western Europe specifically. So they might huff and puff and say various things about elections and referendums being unfair, but when it comes to the substance of, of opposing... Erdogan in practice, they're not going to be the ones to stand up for that. No, I mean, no one's going to stand up to Erdogan face up. So whatever the monitor said, that just disappears into... Yeah, uh, into who cares. Into the who cares atmosphere, because what lies behind the Trump thing, for example, let's talk power politics, forget Trump, it's the fact that the the Pentagon and the U.S. military uh, very much want to rebuild relations with Erdogan both on a specific issue, which is he threatened to throw the Americans out of their major air base uh, in southern Turkey after the coup, uh, and played that hand pretty effectively, and because the Americans are trying to rebuild an anti-Iran coalition, mm-hmm. and Turkey will be part of that. What do you do in that? Well, I still think you have a baseline where you have to raise questions and issues. Uh, you have effective martial law in the southeast of the country. Uh, that issue you can raise without saying that you're sympathizing with the PKK and an insurgency, Kurdish insurgency. Uh, there is a but base. What, but what weight will that have? I mean, look, you've worked long enough with activists that you know even voicing, even giving the expression to voice means that an issue doesn't just simply disappear, even if immediate action can't be taken on it. Or right? I mean, or I mean, well, I mean, you could say that just something that smacks of, you know, not just going through the motions, but caring so little one isn't even prepared to do that, perhaps widens the scope of possibility for, for, for those that, 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 you know, are keeping at least half an eye on Western reaction. For example, the United States has maintained relationships with some questionably democratic and illiberal people for a long time. And like there's, there's a fairly clear playbook for what you say in a situation like this, right? You say, I spoke to the president of Turkey. Um, you know, I, we noted the result of the referendum. I encouraged him that at this difficult time for his country, he needs to ensure that he takes all necessary steps to build, um, to, to build uh, unity uh, between the groups who all need to be represented within the vibrant discourse that is Turkish civic society. And you leave it kind of unspoken that what you're saying is, I suspect this guy has authoritarian instincts, and I uh, suggested that we would prefer him to keep those under wraps. Whereas what if you in fact, if you what if, if what you in fact say is, hey, I heard about your referendum. Good result, man. Uh, you must give me tips sometime on how you, uh, how you do business. Anyway, have fun. I'll speak to, you, uh, speak to you soon. Then that just bespeaks such a contemptuous indifference for even the verbal niceties of you know, human rights and liberalism that uh, even if they weren't going to listen to you before, uh, it probably then extends further out the range on the other side of what they think they can get away with before they encounter the slightest resistance. Well, but everybody knows Trump's a joke. And, in, and actually, well, let's watch this. Erdogan is now, you've seen his play now. 
I've now got my referendum, expanded powers. I'm now going to become the leader around the world. He's going to go on a foreign policy tour, and he's going to be in D.C. next month. Mm-hmm. But he knows Trump's a joke. Everybody knows it. So he just wants the photo opportunity. The key discussions there are with the American agencies. You know that, right? So where do you go beyond Trump in terms of playing the politics off? Are you completely cynical and say, we just want our air base there? Uh, We just want Turkey squared up against Iran in the Middle East? Uh, Or do you actually maintain some baseline, as we say, of, there are wider concerns here about stability that we want to raise. Well, it's not hopeful because if you want the comparison, when President Sisi of Egypt was recently in Washington, nice pictures and absolutely not a peep from the State Department or anyone else about the fact that Egypt, of course, has been banging up thousands of people for months now um, and killing a few foreigners in the process for what that's worth. Okay, I think we've set the world to rights. Thank you very much. You can follow the Political Worldview podcast on Twitter at at PollWorldView, and please do. Please also subscribe to us on SoundCloud or iTunes, where you can leave us a rating or a comment. That helps other people discover the pod, and we really appreciate it. You can also um, come and like our show page on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash PollPOLWorldView. See article links, comments, uh, post your own comments, etc. And if you want to recommend us on social media, that's a pretty good way to help people who might not know we exist discover us and like us and uh, what goes around comes around maybe we'll recommend your podcast one day our participants today have been scott lucas say goodbye scott and tell them where they can find you goodbye adam but you can always <laughs> see you're gonna say goodbye scott for the, the, <laughs> the classic goodbye scenario joke there but no. <laughs> he's he's above oh, that. Yeah, that, 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 that would be beneath you where can they find you on social media <laughs> i am at scott lucas underscore ea on twitter or at political worldviews partner eaworldview.com. That's EA Worldview for all the information and analysis you'd like to know on Syria, Iran, the U.S., and a lot more. For all of your worldview needs. Uh, and Cristola, where can they find you? You yeah, can find me on Twitter at at Yakinthu, which is, as we know, Y-A-K-I-N-T-H-O-U. Mm. Neatly spelled. Thank you. I'm Adam I've Quinn. I'm Adam Quinn. You can find me on Facebook. I'm Adam Quinn uh, 161 if you want a number or uh, the guy standing next to Lyndon Johnson in the photograph uh, if you don't. Uh, I'm also on Twitter at Adam James Quinn, although I use that less often. Our producer is Connor McKenna, and you've been listening to us from the Pulses Department at the University of Birmingham, England. We'll be back soon. We hope you will be too. Say goodbye, Adam. Bye. <laughs>